Welcome to another episode of Rosenballs Presents NBA Betting, but we're talking this summer a series of NBA stories, kind of going through the historical significance of some of these moments, how it shaped the NBA today, and just life lessons we can learn from different interesting things around the NBA, usually around um, kind of franchises, GMs, um, sort of life cycle of units and cores on teams, what went wrong, what didn't, kind of examining it, uh, and it's just a brief synopsis history. We did the Patina Celtics. We did Kraus post MJ Bulls. And we did the Atlanta Hawks, which is the definition of purgatory in the 90s and 2000s. But we're going to continue that note this time with the Utah Jazz. Now, there's always an age-old question uh, in NBA history, really in sports. It's a good question for fans out there, right? If you're a fan of a team, would you rather have a good 15, 10 to 15 years of being really good, but, and maybe you win once, you get a couple of bites at the apple, and or you don't win at all, but you're always kind of getting to the second round or further, fan, uh, the area's always excited about the team. Or would you be like, you know, the baseball version of the Marlins, where you're really bad, really bad, really bad, all of a sudden your team splurges on talent, and then one year you win, and you're bad again in irrelevancy. What's better? And for the fan, it's an interesting question. But revenue-wise, it's also a question, right? Like, budget-wise, you know, there's a lot of books I've done on this. Winning correlates to attendance and to other, you know, people watching the games and revenue, right? When a team is good for a longer period, the local market will watch more. Just be a higher penetration, typically. You combine that with homegrown talent, and, and it's a no-brainer, right? And here's a couple of good examples. You have, you know, last season in the NBA, or last couple of years, one of the teams that have the lowest percentage of their DMA watching the local team is obviously the Brooklyn Nets. Why? It's a big DMA. It's a new team. But also they have no homegrown talent, all this new talent coming in. More of like a national team. It's like the Harlem Globetrotters doing like a, a national circuit than, than any local field. You compare that to teams that have a dynasty, right? And obviously, if you're good for a sustained period, tends to do better. The Spurs consistently are able to withstand bad years now, bad winning years, because they had a long period of winning, and they built this sort of core local dynasty or local, you know, uh, loyal viewership. People really felt like they grew with the team, and the team was good enough that they had, you know, interest throughout that period. Right. Cleveland had a bit of a boost because they were kind of a surprise team. So the surprises help as well. But are they long lasting? I don't know. Cleveland was kind of like a blurb that jumped up because they were a surprise. So the surprise element helps from a short term, but being good for a longevity does well, right? Now again, when you look at these teams, the team that really embodies a team that was really good for a long period and never quite made it over the hump to win a title is the Utah Jazz. Indiana Pacers, you can make an argument with them too. They're another one I thought of for this. But the Pacers' difference is while they had one core guy, maybe a few, you could argue Rick Smith with Reggie, it, it, they added other bigger pieces, made bigger risks, I would say, through their tenure. Better calculated risk, quite frankly. 
more, you know, larger changes, right? Like I, I would argue in the Indiana sense, the two big changes that they made, they had their early 90s success. They kept losing to, you know, they lost to the Knicks. They eventually went over the hump, lose to Orlando. You know, uh, their big change, one big change was the Jalen Rose signing one year. They got younger and they, they realized, you know, again, great GMing by uh, Donnie Walsh on that one. So that's one. Um, and then their other big move was Jermaine O'Neal, right? So a couple years later, they realized Reggie's getting older. They need to have a kind of a jolt of talent. Um, and they do a clever kind of veteran for youth move, which is which usually happens for teams that are like purely rebuilding. And they jettison this youthful period, uh, which extended the window really nicely for Reggie. So Reggie basically was had this like started with a Chuck person year in the late 80s, early 90s. Then he kind of owns the team for a brief period. Then they, and then, you know, him and Smiths do. Mark Jackson kind of helps it. Then it lays on to a, a Jalen Rose, Reggie Miller stage where Rose was really the best player on that team. Um, and then it led to a Jermaine O'Neal stage. So we kind of have four phases, right? The Utah Jazz thing is more interesting because it, it was never really uh, altering, crazy altering moves. We're going to dissect the moves they did. And all that. First, I think what was interesting about the Jazz is the whole dynasty, more so than other teams noted, really starts with the coach, right? So Indiana, when we say core, like the Bull, the Bulls come to mind with Phil Jackson, Jordan. It's a coach with the top players, right? And the Jazz really embody that. Okay, the, the Pacers don't because they had, um, you know, Larry Brown, and then and then they kind of had a Rick Carlisle era that kind of shifts it for me. Jerry Sloan being the main uh, piece is, is quite critical, right? So they obviously start, start with Frank Layden, um, and he, you know, understands Stockton. He's the one that kind of gives him a chance. And then it leads into the Sloan period in kind of the late 90s, early, late 80s, early 90s. In the Jazz, what's interesting about it is they're able to sustain – and be consistent, I would say, top four seed in the West. They had a couple of first-round exits here and there, but they're a top four seed um, throughout this period. And they're really a top four seed, I would say, between the years of, like, 1988, when Malone gets in his groove finally, almost all the way through, like, 2003, until the season before where Malone, um, 2002, really, Right, where Malone eventually leaves, he goes to the Lakers, and then, you know, uh, Stockton retires, and the whole thing. That is a crazy period. It's a 17-year period of being basically a top four seed in the West and, and on average positioning of, of being a second round in that. Now, they had a couple of first-round exits again, and they had a couple of conference finals again. Let's talk about the West during these periods, too, when they're doing it, and then we'll talk about the Jazz. The West in these periods, in the late 80s, you're battling with this upstart Phoenix team, obviously the Lakers, okay? Um, and there's kind of like the, the East is better than the West with the Celtics, obviously, uh, coming on strong and the Bulls coming up, Detroit, right? The West is weaker. Easier to make the playoffs, obviously. But you have a couple of up-and-coming teams in the West, right? You have the Robinson Spurs who are coming. Um, you have Golden State for a brief period with Run TMC is actually looking interesting with, with Nelson as the coach, and they're winning in the 50s. Um, and, you know, the Jazz, you know, usurp a couple of teams like Houston, 
and they jump into the top four. Then you kind of have this early 90s period where now these Western teams, you know, Seattle comes on, San Antonio is getting stronger, okay? Lakers kind of died down, right? Phoenix does a crazy move with Barkley. Now they're back in it, and Houston's getting better. And the Jazz are still now floating in that 4-5. And by the way, in this, Portland's still in there too. So there's like six core really good teams in the West. And Utah stays in that core for the longest period amongst any of those teams. Okay? Moving on to the mid-90s, Barkley leaves the Suns. The Suns kind of go through a a different movement under age, but an interesting movement. Seattle is now the strongest team. San Antonio is still in there. Houston now, obviously, is getting bigger. But again, Utah finds itself in the in the thick of it. And the late 90s finally is when Utah gains supreme. Um, and... You know, they, they make the way, but then Portland starts getting better with Pippen coming in there, getting some veteran talent. And then Portland, you know, eventually kind of reigns supreme, and then that leads way to then, you know, Sacramento. But in this period, Utah is always there. They're always there, right? Which is, you know, at the very least interesting. Right? So let's dissect with, with the Jazz. So the first Jazz open up with Malone and Stockton. And... They get one of the more underrated finds we should know in this early, late 80s, early 90s period that makes them good, right? In, in my personal opinion, it, it, the, the classic Jazz teams had the same construct, okay? It was basically um, Stockton and Malone, right? And we're going to talk about sort of these added pieces. It was the same small four throughout. So first it starts with, like, um, Thurl Bailey in this position, right? Now, Thurl Bailey... You know, had some flirtations with the expansion of Minnesota Timberwolves. He gets to Utah. He's a good, before 3 and D, it was just D. So he was a good larger forward, which a lot of teams in the late 80s had. Guys like Jerome Kersey, uh Cliff Robinson, um, you know, J.R. Reed. These sort of lengthy threes, and in today's game would be a four, okay? So Thurbelly's a three. Again, it's similar small forts, but I'll, I'll note them. And then they get lucky where, um, you know, with... Um, with Keith Glass, and they they pick up, you know, a no name real free agent, but a seven foot four, shot blocking phenom on Mark Eaton. So they get the right appropriate pieces apart. They have a defensive guy at the five and the three, a, a monster defensive guy at the five, one of the more underrated centers, averaging over five blocks a game. And Mark Eaton, who doesn't want the ball at all, he was averaging like five points, right? Almost had a record of averaging more blocks than points. Okay, you have Bailey playing D. This is the late eighties Jazz. Um, and they're missing, like, their, their score, but Malone is such a scoring phenom, it's okay, okay? What they do in the late 80s, they realize, like, early on, as before they even sift the second round, they realize we got to get another offensive punch. So Jeff Malone is killing it with the bullets. And um, the Jazz pick him up in free agents. They sign him to a long-term deal. So now they have, like, a missing piece. But it's an aging Jeff Malone, right? He was great in the 80s, towards the end of his career, but now it's ready for him to be that score. So Jeff Malone leads them to this period now. This kind of core that I just noted takes them to about 92. But they're not getting over the hump. They're still like the second-round team, right? Sloan's still there, and it's still really stocked them alone and these other pieces, I'll call it, okay? They get finally to the, um, you know, in this sort of second-round stage in the, in the early 90s. Uh, it's around 92-ish, I want to say. And... Um, two things happen at the same time, unfortunately, right? So one of them is Eaton's these, 
you know, break down. He's not getting, he's not getting healthy, right? Thorough Bailey is also kind of dwindling. It's not really working. And there's a couple of big moves now that, that jettison them. They're not big tier moves, but the small moves that end up helping. Okay. One of them is, and they, 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 you'll see throughout, they, they do this. So they, they draft David Benoit to be like the heir apparent to Thorough Bailey as the defensive three guy. Sort of gets the job done, if you will. Okay. For them. Um, they trade, while Eaton's breaking down, they trade Jeff Malone. And, and really underratedly crazy, though. So they got a little lucky here with this trade. Uh, they trade Jeff Lode at the end of you know his career, kind of a cap-saving move, to Philadelphia for uh, Jeff Hornison. And now the reason why the Sixers do that move is because they're going to jettison their own rebuild. They're, gonna, they, they're bringing in, you know, this is right when they're drafting Jerry Stackhouse, they're eventually going to have Iverson. And this is a big move around the mid-'90s because now – um, this is a huge upgrade. You go from Jeff Malone to Jeff Hornacek. However, that upgrade is met with a huge downgrade. Mark Eaton's gone. So now the Jazz have to linger around. And this is kind of what happens with the Jazz. They're the same kind of top, but they just get a, enough of a jolt to remain in the second round edge. Um, they swap. Eaton's gone, and they sign Felton Spencer. Okay, But again, same sort of philosophy, same slow style, right? Just known the defensive five. Now, in the mid-90s, they still um, do their thing, but they lose to Seattle, right? They can't get – they keep having these sort of – by the way, they keep having these teams throughout that they can't get ahead of. So in the late 80s, it's the Lakers. The early 90s, is Portland. And then the mid-90s, it's Seattle. Can't get uh, in front of them, right? They don't face Houston yet even. Seattle faces Houston. It'll lose to them. So these are those second-round commonalities that they get. But again, same kind of core team. Right, and and the chemistry is ridiculous. Like they're playing way up, punching way above their talent because Stockton is a chemistry guy, Malone is as well, and the and the the whole flow makes sense. Okay. Now in the mid nineties, Stockton and Malone are starting to age a little bit, but they're still prominent. Malone's now actually hitting his prime at a ripe age, incredible shape, very underrated athlete uh, in NBA history. One of the big things that happens with the Jazz is. Now around 96, with Shaq coming on with the Lakers, um, they make another big move. They realize, okay, our center is our weak point. Hornacek and Stockton and Malone are now forming a really good trio there. And Hornacek starting to gain more points. Um, make a couple of subtle moves. So David Benoit not really working. They get Chris Morris, right? And they have a great draft as well, around 96, 97. A couple of good drafts in a row. Again, nothing earth-shattering. You know, this isn't going to make like any front pages. Because Shane Anderson is a second-rounder. Howard Isley is a nice little backup point guard. Now, and they get Jeff Foster as well. So now really building that bench, okay, which they're going to need because, again, the aforementioned talents are aging. But one of the bigger things that happen is also on draft night where they pick up Greg Ostertag, who's, again, just a big body, big upgrade from Spencer. So it's these subtle sort of back-end rotation guys. They're taking the obvious picks on draft night that I like to say. They're not going through the home runs. They're hitting a lot of singles. With those guys. And now they got a, kind of a new core. So just when, like, they're starting to age and Spencer's not enough, they get a jolt with the Oster tag. It's enough of a jolt at some of the bench. And then they start breaking through, right? And then the mid-90s, 96, 97, is where they were patient and things hit their stride, right? So to recap, in the late 90s, the Lakers were ridiculous. In the early 90s, um, 
you know, they, they, they fight Portland, which is very strong, but then, then Houston makes that move, but then Seattle comes on. So they, they've always had the situation when they have to battle an up-and-coming young team while simultaneously trying to dethrone the old veteran team. They do this throughout the Jazz. The Jazz are the, the tried and true tortoise throughout. They kind of have two hairs coming at them. Up-and-coming young, tried and true vet. Okay? And then finally, 97, it's no different. I can name the two. So the Lakers are the up-and-coming young team. They have the Shaq, obviously there, um, immensely talented team. Del Harris is the coach at this point. And obviously Kobe's up-and-coming, right? And this team is battle-tested enough at this stage. They know the shticks of both, right? They know how to battle sort of these up-and-coming young teams at this stage after battling through Seattle, to name a few, and the aging vet teams, which I think they learned from the experience with the early Portland years in the early 90s. And they crack through the Lakers, and they crack through Houston as the veteran agent team. Again, this is the post a lot. one's still there, but now Pippen is there, Barkley's there, and they get through shit. And they get through it, right? So, one of the, um, and the way they get through it, it's just consistent. Okay? It's really the Stockton Malone Hornets Act trio which is immense at this point, just like unbelievable um, chemistry, right? And it's the lost art that I want to bring up here that the Jazz are pertaining to, right? We're like, if your core, the reason why it's not good to rebuild, and I love to go rebuild and wouldn't rebuild the right point, all this stuff, is because basketball is a chemistry sport, right? You get an idea of who's going to be what, where, and the, and the pieces fit. And you have unselfish people that are now battle-tested. They form together. I talked to them alone. Notice is one of the best tandems. Mahorosak's a very underrated too, and when we discuss that, and also knows how to move off the ball and, and pass, right? But and it's also it's not about the chemistry; it's about everyone knowing the role as well, right? And that team perfectly, that unit perfectly embodied it. Okay, and they get past Houston. Houston's the more talented team. Game seven was in Houston, so Houston's playing on the road. Doesn't matter because while Houston's more talented, they were just kind of thrown together with the Barkley Pippen years and the Trider to Tortoise with great chemistry and people finally building and, and kind of consistent with the core beats out some of the flash in the pants, which is the lesson of the Utah jazz. Now the problem is you say it's a great story. Look, the jazz, as we know, in 97 get to the finals, they lose to the bulls. Okay. Their first taste. I get it. They're a little older. And even though they're battle tested, they never quite got to this point. And look, you, you know, you're going to start blaming people for losing to the Jordan bulls. A lot of people did fine. But they get back there again, and it was interesting that people don't know in the second year of that back-to-back. At this point, no NBA team had lost the second back-to-back while playing the same team in the finals, right? You have Pistons-Lakers. They split when they faced each other consecutive years. You have Celtics-Lakers, who, by the way, also split when they played, okay? You never had a team that swept both years up to this point. Not only that, the Jazz, I believe, swept the Bulls both games. They were the better team. They had home court in the finals. They didn't have a 97. They had a 98. They had home court. Jordan's last shot in game six was in Utah. Okay? And it's really a weird moment where it would have been appropriate for the Bulls to lose. Because Jordan's about to retire. I get, But it didn't happen that way. And 
you would have think that would also while the while we all know the story with the Bulls, we talked about it, how they revamped and they completely overhauled everything. I would have expected the same thing from the Jazz, but they didn't. They fought through, and look, you could argue, did they did they let the guys last too long below the stock? Yeah, probably. And then they fought the same thing. After those years, there's a lockout year, which kind of ages them longer, right? And that was a reflection year. They didn't take the bait on. They didn't take the rebuilding bait, okay? And a lot of that was due to do with Jared Sloan, quite frankly, right? I don't know if Sloan was ready for it. But instead, they fought through. They ended up playing Portland. They play Seattle, these young teams. And I think one of the bigger telling points for them is when they lose in the first round of Dallas, this upcoming Nowitzki-Finley team, in a game five in uh, in Utah. And at that point, they realize this isn't happening. And Malone finally wants to win his title. He's got a couple years left. He goes to Lakers, Stockton retires, and then the rebuild's forced. And that's what happened. And I'd argue this is a 17-year stretch Fans are excited. The Delta Center was the loudest place. It was a, it was an area where NBA ruled because no other team in Utah. And one of the lessons is you got to sometimes continue with the court. And it's okay to be second round and out. It leads to the Jalen Brown resigning in Boston. Something you can make an argument there. There's obviously not crazy similarities. It's probably where it ends. But you rather have that as a town, as a city supporting team, as a revenue generator. That's a good lesson that Utah tells us about consistency. Even though they didn't break through, probably made more money and had a better time doing it.